When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome aboard the Chat Bus, a podcast mini-series in which we talk with fellow travellers through the forest of films of the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm sat next to the wheelbase. <laughs> so join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. Jake, you're sitting next to the wheelbase... As you said on a previous episode, that apparently is a surefire way not to get motion sick on a bus. We've not tested that out yet. No, no, and it'll be, it'll be a long time before I do. I got scared from a night out where I thought, you know, it's been a long, long time since I was a kid and I got I had to be that kid in school that had to sit next to the driver and carry a brown paper bag everywhere we went. And I, I gave, it a, gave it a good go uh, and, you know, still there, still had to get off the bus and walk the rest of the way. <laughs> Well, speaking of awkward school days, Jake, the uh, the topic of this week's uh, episode of The Chat Bus very much takes us back to those days. <laughs> it's the film Turning Red, which is actually secretly, subtly, a film we've spoken about before on the podcast. Yes. Well, this goes back all the way to the first few months of the pandemic, where Domi Shi, the director of Turning Red, uh, was kind enough to join us on the podcast and talk about Studio Ghibli. Uh, we had seen her short film Bow, which is brilliant. Um, and we had seen her Instagram with a lot of, uh, well, a surprising amount of Takahata uh, fan art as well, which is something on this podcast we always like to see. And we ended up with a lot of lovely Ghibli chat. And as we found so often with our conversations, specifically with animators, a lot of love for My Neighbours the Yamadas too. Mm-hmm. A lot of love for Mamoru Hosoda as well, which I think all kind of comes to a head in the film turning red lots of little easter eggs and references in there but also that spirit that joie de vivre in the animation that actually is not too far away from something like luca it's really amazing to see a new generation of pixar filmmakers really embracing um the ghibli dna that's been with them since they were kids but we're talking this week with the co-writer of turning red who wrote it with domishi julia cho who as you teased at the end of last week's episode jake has had a very strange route towards the big screen <laughs> yeah well we'll let her explain that in the intro um but it's almost the absolute reverse of what 
our story is with Studio Ghibli. This is amazing. Um, and I couldn't imagine doing it, but she did. And the result was ultimately the same and that she is a huge Ghibli fan. Uh, lots of love for the studio. And you can see that in the film. Um, but it's fascinating as well to talk to someone who works in lots of different mediums as a storyteller. Uh, so she came about working in plays and then move from plays into TV and then from TV into features. And that's where we're at now with Turning Red. Um, and, you know, I, I'm fascinated with talking to people about how they like, go about writing stories. So it's always really interesting to talk about the differences between writing something that can be performed and redone and redone and reshaped over and over again to compared to something that can be both as free flowing, but also rigid as telling an animated story as well. Um, really a, a privilege to have her on the show. And this is yet another chapter in our ongoing oral history of Pixar and how they work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so cool to speak with so many people who've worked on Pixar movies because that is a studio who had so many myths spread about how they work. So it's great to demystify that. Oh, yeah. I think one day when when we're making loads and loads of money, uh, we'll go to Pixar, ask them if we can hire out an office for a day and we'll just sit there with our microphones, do it like a, ro a revolving door. Just any staff member, come in, come on unload tell us about ghibli and then we'll, we'll have a next mini series for a few years sorted there but that's talking about the potential far-flung future of the podcast and one way that we are shaping the future of the podcast is with our recently launched patreon thank you to everyone who signed up so far it's been so fun chatting with you on the discord but jake do you want to give us a taste of what the patreon is well it's not just how we're shaping the future of the podcast michael it's how the patrons are shaping the future of the podcast uh so if you are one of our patrons uh you're gonna get a kind of input on what we look at next on the podcast so we want to be talking to you about directors studios that you think deserve the mini series treatment who's the next chronology who's the next cartoon saloonverse we want to know uh, and so we're going to be giving out polls and things like that but we also got our discord channel which is very very lively and full of lots of discussions whether that's about video games about music about what we're watching on film and tv it's it's pretty broad church but a very lovely hub for ghibli and ghibli adjacent conversation absolutely and also certain backers can get access to the library cafe bonus episodes where we talk with steph as well about all the things we do when we're not talking about studio ghibli that includes recent episodes about the batman the big batman movie also an episode all about turning red where the three of us go deep on that film and how much we enjoyed it as well as picking apart the anime influences but that's when we talk about films sometimes we also talk about tea we talk about music You're, and vinyl yeah you can kind of track my experiences of the playstation console from total newcomer to relative newcomer still <laughs> But just, just exploring a brand new art form with the guidance of you two has been lovely. Yes, well, that's over on the Patreon. Please do check us out. That's patreon.com slash ghibliatech. But now, time for our chat with Julia Cho. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Julia, thank you so much for joining us inside the lovely welcoming walls of the Ghibliotech. It's uh, very lovely to have you with us. Oh, it's really lovely to be here. Thank you so much. And, uh, well... People all around the world know about how I got into Ghibli because Michael forced me into it a few years ago, and now I've uh, I've been fully converted to the Church of Ghibli. Uh, <laughs> but I've got to start with your journey, Studio Ghibli. Where did you meet them? What did they mean to you? Well, I actually uh, a long time ago, when I was still firmly in theater, um, I had the opportunity to apply for a travel grant. It was through a playwriting organization, and. Um, I'm Korean-American, but I had this idea that I really wanted to visit Japan, and I really wanted to um, kind of culturally explore it. So I actually proposed to this um, kind of travel fellowship. Uh, my idea is that I wanted to go to Japan and explore the things that Japan had in been inspired and influenced by um, from America, but then had completely owned and turned into something amazing that was their own. So um, because of that, I had all these things I wanted to see. And one of them was the Ghibli Museum in, in Japan. And so that to me was like, um, I, I remember there were like sort of three prongs of it. One was, one was baseball. <laughs> so I proposed that I would see a baseball game in Japan because I wanted to see how they had taken American baseball. Um, and then for me, like Ghibli was about, yeah, the, um, uh, and I say Ghibli, I should say Ghibli. I'm so bad with pronunciations. Um, but I wanted to see how they had taken their inspiration from American uh, animation in the 30s, right? You sort of see the influence of the Betty Boop, the eyes, and things like that, um, and then had completely transformed it into something of their own. So I remember uh, taking the train out uh, to the small town that uh, the studio is in, and, you know, it's a museum, and um, I just remember that there was this, like, long path to get to it, that it felt like a pilgrimage because all the other... <laughs> fans were all walking the same path and so it was like this mecca <laughs> that we were all on 
And the funny thing was, is that at that time, I wasn't really a huge super fan. It wasn't that I had passionately seen the movies. I was just really fascinated by this cultural kind of, um, frankly, like an appropriation, but a sort of homage and a kind of like, we're going to take that and run with it and do our own thing. Um, and so I, I remember actually visiting and being really struck by it and um, getting to see, I'm sure you've had other guests talk about it too, just like how beautiful and perfect it is. Um, and uh, now I wish I could go back. I really, really want to go back now that I know what I would be looking at better. <laughs> do, you, do you remember at all what the um, special exhibition was at the time? I do not. I just remember there was kind of a recreation of, I want to say it was like a recreation of Miyazaki's, um, like a room or something, mm. because I just remember, right, there was like his chair and the way they had set it up it was almost like the notebook and the pencil like he had just gotten up to get some tea you know and so I just remember that recreation and just loving how um and the movies are like this like how lived in it felt you know and just how um magical all the little mundane details but nothing digital everything totally felt like handmade weathered um, so yeah, I remember that, but I don't remember the special exhibit. I remember the gift shop <laughs> and being like, wow, everything, I want everything in here. Um, but no, I don't, I don't remember what the, what the movie was at the time or what the exhibits were. So I think that's also why I really wish I could go back. Oh, wow. It's, it's almost like, this is like the, the reverse of every other entry to Studio Ghibli yes. conversation we've had. Whereas like mine was, I'll watch all the films, then we'll go to Japan and then we'll go to the museum. And I love that we're starting this yes. conversation with, well, I discovered them when I went to the museum. Yeah, I just <laughs> went to the museum first. And um, and then over time, you know, I, I watched the movies, uh, but then I probably didn't really get into it more um, until I, I started working at Pixar and they were so... Um, just in awe of those movies and it felt like I had to educate myself so that was when I did more of a serious look at um, uh, you know Totoro and Spirited Away, um, Porco Rosso, some of the lesser Napanio. like I, I felt like because of Pixar there was a real um, encouragement to check out the lesser known Miyazaki movies and so I ended up seeing those uh, more recently and with uh, just yeah more of an eye of like oh like what can I how can I be inspired by this you know so when we've spoken with people who work at Pixar in the past they've really said like everybody who works there is a super fan so that must be quite daunting to to go into there and then everyone's talking about these Ghibli films so what were they talking about um, um, and that made you then go a bit deeper yeah you know I think that they are definitely touchstones for some of the people there um, and uh, once I saw the films then I felt like I could kind of keep up a little bit better in the conversations but um, I think yeah it, it is like you're coming from these people who love animation and who are who are like me who were those kids who were drawing in their notebooks um, so their depth and knowledge is just so deep and even um for a while before the pandemic, there would be this big room called the Fishbowl where all the story artists were, you know, and it was just like you could see people bringing in their anime <laughs> books and bringing in like the uh, just the references. Um, everyone's a big fan. I remember uh, one of the story artists dressing up like for Halloween, as you can imagine, Pixar would go all out and and his costume was being um, Kiki. <laughs> You know, so it's just the love of it is all, of just Japanese animation just like so runs so deep. It's part of the air I feel like that they breathe at Pixar. Yeah. And so as a, as a storyteller yourself, what do you think 
you're connecting to in these stories so when you're you've got you've gone to the museum you think you go a bit deeper let's say a like a my neighbor totoro or a spirited away when you look at that what in what is inspiring to you what's really inspiring is the mysteriousness of the stories and the way they just don't explain things in the way i feel like american storytelling or western storytelling would demand and that kind of looseness and um willingness to sort of have faith that the audience will still go with you uh, is really profound because it just all it just offers an alternate model for how storytelling can be and so I think it is inspiring because especially with um, you know uh, the kinds of movies that we see in our culture a lot of them are so tightly made and just the well-made movie that's classically structured so to see movies that kind of blow that structure completely <laughs> the water or are not even concerned with it um, is really necessary I think because it just reminds you of what's possible and so I think that's super inspiring um, another really inspiring thing is just how quiet a lot of the movies can also be and how simple uh, simple in the most uh, beautiful way and uh, I think that's really inspiring and the handmade quality of the movies is really inspiring so there's just a lot there that's really um, like it just makes you feel grateful that there's that other way of telling story is there one of the films that you went away and watched that you'd single out as being the one that impressed you most um that's a really good question um i think there's uh there's definitely a lot to spirited away that was really inspiring because there's a story of transformation the story of a young girl who grows up um, I think what's also inspiring about Spirited Away, she's not very likable in the beginning. Like, she's a whiner. <laughs> she's a complainer. Like, there's no sort of like, oh, this noble kid who's destined for great things. Like, her very normalcy is really refreshing. Um, and then, of course, she goes on this incredible journey. And there's so many visuals from Spirited Away that have really stuck with me. Um, no name, you know, that specter, but also just that train ride she takes just across nothingness. I mean, just it's visually really stunning. Um, but then I guess I also feel like, um, you know, that I think that might be the most, but then I, I just remember also loving Pocoroso because it was so surprising to me, like I'd never seen it before. And just seeing that kind of humor and just lightness was also really, um, it was good. It was teaching me like, oh, there's a lot more here than just the movies that everyone's heard of. So yeah, I think those have stuck with me. Um, and then there's like I don't think it's a I don't think it's a Ghibli film, but is Whisper of the Heart? Who, who is that Ghibli as well? Okay, so then that yeah. stuck with me because that is super quiet, right? There's no explosions. Mm -hmm. It's just really sweet, uh, and I I loved it because I didn't really know what to expect, and I kind of love that it wasn't super magical. It's very much in our world. Um, and it is the quietest story imaginable, and yet I found it moving. And it's the story, right, of a young girl who just is kind of is finding her way towards being an artist. And it's super, super subtle, and um, uh, just it's just beautiful. And, and just seeing something like that was also really inspiring. I'm smiling because that's my favorite one. Is it the beginning with the John Denver song starts? And like, I, I was like, I never even understood. Like, Country Road, Take Me Home is kind of a cliche. But, but as soon as that starts, I, I feel just enthralled. I don't know what it is. But I think there is that magical combination of something super Japanese and super American can just create this vision of magic. 
right? Like, oh, well, you need to apply for another travel grant because yeah. if you actually get the train out to the station where that film is set, the the jingle on the train is country roads. No. We couldn't believe it. <laughs> I would start to cry. I'd be I'd be crying because it's so beautiful. I remember like stopping it and redoing because I just wanted to keep hearing that song with that image. <sighs> yeah, that's a good one. Okay, so um, so let's um look further back before before the museum and um and all of our adventures into Ghibli. Um, were you, were you watching anime when you were when you were younger, when you were a kid, or did you have much knowledge of it, or was no. it a thing that came later? It came much later. I mean, I was a child of the '80s, and I feel like it wasn't really accessible you know um i just remember that those were the days when it took a lot of effort to get a movie you know you had to go to your um you had to go to your it was before blockbuster right i mean i still remember in my neighborhood it was like arizona tv like it was like the, a, a mom and pop video store that we would go to and i don't think there was any anime there what I do remember as a kid, though, is watching stuff like Robotech, <laughs> like, right, like those sort of Japanese cartoons that made it over. Um, but I don't remember watching any movies. And it was actually really hard to find the Robotech movie. And that was really exciting to find and watch on VHS. Um, but no, I didn't grow up saturated, I think, in anime and Japanese animation the way kids do now or even 10, 15 years ago. Like I... I wish I had, but no, I, I had I had none of it. It was uh, I was before I was born too early. <laughs> well, it, it's fascinating how the geography affects it because we we had Enrico Casarossa on um, last year or the year before, and for him, growing up in Italy, where anime was exported much earlier than anywhere else, he just had like had all this knowledge and was watching stuff through the eighties and watching Future Boy Conan and all of this mm. stuff, and that that was just a regular part of it. And that stuff that has like even in the UK hasn't even been distributed yet. It's mad. Now I'm now I'm mad. Yeah, like because uh, all, all the good stuff was apparently going to Europe. It was not coming to me in Arizona. I can tell you that. <laughs> it was like crickets where I was. <laughs> So, so what were you renting from that mom and pop store? Oh, well, I just feel like it was all like big American movies, you know, just the big blockbusters. And um, yeah, I, I feel like it was a pretty mainstream diet of pop culture when I was growing up, uh, which, you know, much to my detriment <laughs> but, uh, or not, you know. So, yeah, just pretty, pretty normal American uh, childhood in that respect. No, it's, it's funny because when we speak to people who work now in animation as animators or their animation filmmakers they could look at their like nine-year-old or ten-year-old interests because they've been watching that stuff since that young and draw an exact path and i suppose because for you you've gone from stage to screen small mm. to big so what what was it early on that was inspiring you to tell stories then well, I was really into comics when I was younger, so I would collect comics. I had an older brother that I just did everything he did. Like, I just basically imitated his childhood. And so a big part of my childhood was, um, like, collecting Marvel comics and trying to draw. Um, so I do feel... I, I really loved coming to Pixar because I never really... Um, I never really developed past a certain point as a drawer. I wouldn't even say artist, as a drawer. Um, and so I kind of at some point just switched tracks to writing. But there is this little kid part of me that um, collected a lot of like Archie comics. I had a ton of Archie comics. Um, I had all like X-Men, New Mutants. Like it was like that was my world of comics. And 
I would try to draw and try to imitate the incredible art, but it was so, I, I clearly did not have the same hand-eye coordination. Um, so for me, the real delight of being at Pixar was that um, it's not completely foreign to me, you know, like, uh, I, so I feel like there is this like little kid part of me that can connect. It's just that they all had much more talent. <laughs> so they, they actually made a life out of it. But I think if I'd had more talent, I would have stuck with drawing because I, I really loved it. Um, so there's that kind of kinship. And then also, um, again, sort of pre-COVID, one of the things that I loved about Pixar was that there there are these um, cabinets on every floor that are just filled with Tombow pe- marker pens and pads of paper and colored pens. It's like, it's like a, a fantasy to a kid who loved to draw because there's just drawing things everywhere. So... Um, sometimes I felt like that was like the best part of the job, just being like, I can get a Tombow marker and brush pen anytime I want. Like it just felt like, even if I just draw a circle, this thing looks makes it look good, you know. So, um, so I think yeah, there is that little bit of a that little kid inside me who just loves art and drawing. Um, so it's not like an immediate line, but it is a little bit of a. You're right. There was sort of this circuitous route into other things, but I can access it still. I think. I'm I'm totally fascinated by, well, any any screenwriter really, or any writer, and how they approach things when they're working in different mediums. Because the difference between writing something for stage that can effectively evolve as it's being performed compared to something in animation where you've got to be so rigid with because that's going to be almost set in stone and then get animated in all the different things that you've written across all the different forms how do you approach the different areas and what's unique about working in animation as a writer oh that's a really good question um you know I think that I started writing plays first and I was uh young I mean I was like barely out of college and I was writing plays and I think what really helped was that playwriting felt very wild and unregulated. It didn't feel like there were any rules. Like there are playwriting like how-to books, but um, I think there's just something about theater that for for every well-made play, there's like 10 crazy messes. <laughs> like You don't really know what you're doing and it just seems to come out of your unconscious. So I think that I actually was, in, was only in theater for quite a while, like longer than now. I feel like now what happens is you write one play and then you get sucked into uh, streaming and, you know. But I had I had time to figure out what my playwriting voice was like. Um, and uh, I never wrote with an outline. It was always just kind of like um, seeing where it goes. Like it was a much more organic way of storytelling because I almost deliberately didn't want to know where I was headed because... I strongly felt that if I wasn't surprised by the story, then no, neither would an audience. So I, I tried so hard just to focus on or write plays that were constructed around characters who felt alive to me, like people. And it was almost like channeling them and their voices and what they would do. So when I went from that to television writing, because I started TV writing before the age of streaming, um, it was so different. It was um, completely constructed. What I had gone from was, it felt like sculpture, like, you know, like, I have a piece of marble, I'll just keep chiseling until the the form emerges, you know, and it was much more loose. And then to go into television, which was like super strict and rigorous about like, 
we have two weeks, we have to break a story in three days, we have to write, and you have to outline it, you have to have a beat sheet, like, it just used a completely different part of my brain, and so I, I didn't actually feel like I, I kind of went to it from playwriting, I felt like I almost went zero up, like, learning this completely new craft um, that was visual, that moved a lot faster, you know, in a play, I, I, I can literally have one play that just takes place, like, one conversation for an hour, <laughs> you know, and then in television, like a long conversation is two pages, you know, it's like everything is much shorter. So, so that felt really different. And then when I came to Pixar, suddenly all of the different things became integrated in a way they hadn't before because it was a long form again. It was super character based. Um, it was also really visual, but I sort of really found that every tool I had acquired in every different kind of medium came to bear when I was working on the, the Pixar project uh, mm-hmm. because it just used, I needed every single tool. I needed tools I didn't even have yet. And I was like, I was like, I, like it's such a complicated, uh, challenging endeavor that it just felt like I, I learned a lot and then I also had to use everything I could to, to uh, survive, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> um, and so... Yeah, I, but I think it's still a process. I think it's only now that I feel like these different parts of myself are integrated. For a long time, I thought of my theater writing and my theater self as a completely different person than my TV writing TV self. It felt like um, almost multi-personality, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And it's only now that I feel like all of it, I'm starting to feel like I can finally make it coherent but and, that, and that's just the process that's just begun I, I wouldn't say I'm very comfortable at it yet but every genre super super different <laughs> no, I'm really intrigued that organic process of writing for stage that you mentioned is not too dissimilar to the way that Miyazaki writes his films um, he will just start he won't necessarily have an outline and he'll just he'll write it in three chunks start animation for one and then wouldn't know what the ending is and that's why Many of his films will start off as meant 45 to 60 minute long projects that become an hour and a half, two hours long. That's what happened with Totoro and Porco Rosso. It's why some films like Spirited Away don't really fit into a three act structure. It's why what would be the third act in an American film is like the last two minutes <laughs> of the film. Uh, and that's something that when we speak with um, screenwriters who have gone through the a, a more kind of conventional process, mm. find what Miyazaki's doing completely baffling. <laughs> <laughs> how is he even constructing these stories this way because it's so organic to him yeah I think that just requires just an enormous amount of bravery because um, when I do that with a play no money is being spent <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> it's like it's literally like what do I have to lose if I just organically start from the beginning um, to do what he does which is to actually go into production um, and you know to be honest Pixar does that a bit too like we went into production before we knew what the ending of the movie is and that is absolutely terrifying it is just like oh my god we are committed and um you know that so so similar process but the stakes are just so much higher you know um so the fact that he does that again and again i mean i think that there are um, filmmakers who uh do that um like uh i'm so bad with names right now, but the Chunking Express director, Wong Kar Wai, right? Like mm-hmm. he does that in live action, you know, sort of famously, like starts shooting, doesn't quite know where it'll end. 
Um, and there actually are some great examples in Western movies that are like that, like Casablanca, right? Just so famously, like they just, they didn't know. Um, so, so that does creep into filmmaking, I think that approach, and it creates very different kinds of movies, you know. Um, but it, it, but it, it requires a lot of money and bravery. <laughs> it's, it's actually, it's quite reassuring to hear that Pixar also kind of doesn't know what they're doing. Sometimes it kind of reassures me about my own life choices. Cause you, we kind of imagine like Pixar, or we get told about having this legendary oh, yeah. specific approach to story and everything. You just feel like, like they have just got it perfected and everything is perfect all the time, but it's quite nice to hear about the chaos. I would say be reassured. Be reassured that nobody really knows and everyone's trying to catch lightning in a bottle and no one really knows how to do it. Other than to just, this is the field where other people have caught lightning in a bottle. Maybe you stand out there with a really big bottle for a really long time eventually, you know, but there's no easy way to do it. That's why Pixar movies take so long. I think um, mm. it's it's really difficult to to make something that's art essentially uh easy and defined you know so i would say for your life yes revel in the uncertainty and <laughs> just rest assured nobody really knows what's happening except maybe the dalai lama maybe he knows <laughs> but uh yeah nobody in our realm <laughs> well if you could give us a sense of that long process and journey um i suppose there is that matchmaking at the heart of it you're co-writing with Domi and listening back to our interview with her from you know, relatively early in the process because it'd been going on for a long time before then we can almost sense what her contribution to Turning Red is and we'd love to know what your contribution is but can you tell us about that process you're working together what did, what did you bring to the table? Well I feel like my my realm you know is the script like that's my responsibility and I feel I am the writer of that script in the same way like the editor is the editor and um, we all have our jobs you know and so for me the job of writer I took to mean that my responsibility is getting the movie that Domi sees in her head onto this page and to create a map that is the best map we could possibly have so that when the other departments get involved and they look at this script, they will know what the movie is and what we're trying to do each time. And I think that uh, it just, to me, felt like I could bring to it my sense of structure, my sense of story, my sense of if we're starting at A then, and we want to get you know, like to Z what the best way is to do that. So for me, I really felt like um, my job was to come in and just wrestle with her, you know, because she had the characters, she had the world. All of that was amazing and there from the very beginning. But what happened to the characters and how they reacted and what moves they made, like all of that felt uh, very much up for grabs. And it was a long process, process of exploring because it was constantly like trying things seeing if they landed. If they landed, great, let's keep doing that. But if they didn't land, then we had to come up with something else. So I actually felt like I was constantly trying to uh, generate ideas for what could be happening, what we could be doing. Uh, with each uh, iteration, we would talk through the whole story. Um, early on, there were like entire drafts that had to be written. You know, it was like almost like a whole draft of the movie. Um, so I felt like my job was to, um, we would break through the whole story, talk about every scene, uh, and then I would go away and 
and it'd be like, see you later. <laughs> and then I would just go and I would just write and write and write uh, and then come back with what I'd written. And then we had something we could look at together and she could be like this, not that. How about this? And she had her, she has her own great voice, you know, and, mm-hmm. and early on it was like, okay, the 13 year old may, you know, that voice, she's just going to know better than I do coming in fresh. And so learning from her, how she heard the characters and, um, and her humor uh, was just really a great like foundation that as we went on, we could work faster and faster and faster. And then, um, and then kind of go back and forth with the script over this line, not that line. How about doing it this way? Um, you know, this joke. Uh, so, so there was a lot of just like that process of refining um, and just constantly feeling like both of us were working this story and trying to get it to the something that we both loved, you know, and both were behind. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, you know, early on, I think she told me a story. Um, so it's Miyazaki, and then there's the other director that he works with, Takahata. And, um, and I don't know the relationship very well. I have seen Grave of the Fireflies, though, and so I, I, I knew who she was talking about. And I was like, yeah, that's like as far from Miyazaki as you can imagine. <laughs> um, but I think she really liked the story of the two of them because they were so different, but they often helped each other on their movies and maintained their unique voices. Um, and that she sort of told a story about how I think it was Totoro was Miyazaki's working on that while Grave of the Fireflies was being mm-hmm. right. So you just had these two who collaborated but came up with these really different things. And she told me this story really early on, like right when I just started working with her. Um, but I really love that story because like I think temperamentally she and I are very different, you know, and it just meant like, oh, she's not like she's not looking for someone who on the Venn diagram is exactly like her. You know what I mean? Like she's attracted to people who are different working together and when she said that I was like then I I think I can I can do this because I think we are different but we can bring our each strengths to the story um, and so that was sort of a, a touchstone story for me going forward how, how would you characterize the two of you then in terms of your temperaments and oh vibes? I'm definitely the downer uh, for sure for <laughs> sure are you kidding me it's so obvious <laughs> there's no question she's just like um She's just one of the funniest people I think I've, I've ever met. Like she routinely makes me laugh and just without even trying, just because her very being is just so delightful. <laughs> so, and she's mischievous, I think, in that Miyazaki way too. Um, and then I'm, I'm the one who's like, you know, depressed about the world the way, you know, Takahata is. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm imagining a version of Turning Red in which there's no inciting incident or antagonist or anything. And it's just it's just good vibes the whole way through. (laughs) Well, she definitely had all that. You know, I mean, she's uh, she she's so talented. So it was uh, a real opportunity. But as you were saying earlier, you know, there's this sense, I feel like that Pixar, um, they're just gods or, you know, masters of storytelling. And they are masters. But um, I also felt like when I showed up, like, great, I'm going to I'm going to learn from everyone else. They're going to, you know, I'm just going to help, you know. And then when I, I felt like when I showed up, I was like, oh, there's there's no one here <laughs> but, <laughs> but me and Domi. And I was like, oh, oh, no, I'm the one who's supposed to know what I'm doing. So, um, yeah, so that was kind of a, 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 a icy plunge. And, you know, it was like an icy cold bath. It was like, oh, oh, crap, I better I better catch up. Well, because the the story is is clearly so personally rooted in Domi's experience as well. And like going back to her her hometown and so much is personal to her. Is it 
is it a challenge for you to then come in and have to almost kind of rootle around someone's memories and tell them what's good or what's bad? Uh, what was that experience like? Oh, uh, it wasn't a challenge. I feel like I do that anyway. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, as, as do you two, right? I mean, you like yeah. to like kind of sit people down that you don't know that well and see what makes them tick. And I, I, love, to, I love asking people their stories and um, and I think what was great with Domi was that she was totally unabashed about her life. And both of us were. I mean, I, I feel like early on in any collaboration, you just share. You share who you are and what made you you. And we definitely bonded over our very similar uh, upbringings with moms who were really awesome but had high expectations. And, you know, I think because of that, uh, I just, yeah, I would just extract as much from her. I would be very open about it, too. I would just be like, I'm just going to pull and pull and pull <laughs> whatever I can, you know. And um, and there was never any discomfort with, uh, can I use that? Can How can we, what about that, you know. For either of us, I think there was a real generosity with it's whatever makes the movie better. Anything that makes the movie better, we should use and try. That's lovely. Oh, <laughs> a dream collaboration, really. Uh, so when we when we spoke to Domi, uh, it was she kind of clued us in about uh, her kind of love of Mamoru Hosoda as well as her love of Ghibli and like almost particular direct references we might see in the film or inspirations for the film. Um, are there any stories that I suppose you could point to that you think would be would have been on the mood board for Turning Red for you? Oh, stories you mean like that are out in the world that yeah, were sort of inspirations yeah. and sort of, hmm. You know, I think that for me, because I was working on this, on the, like on the writing and the story, like I don't really have visual references to the movie so much. Um, but I do think that there were, like if there could be like an emotional mood board of like the tone of it. Um, sometimes we would talk early on, we would uh, reference the movie Lady Bird, you know, which is sort of a mother-daughter mm -hmm. story and just how they would fight, but they loved each other so much, you know, so I think in the, on the mood board, like, that kind of thing belongs. Um, but, yeah, I feel, I feel I'm not, I feel like when I watch the movie, I can, I can see the anime as well, like, that we all, you know, can, you can see the clear influences, but I don't think I have a particular movie that I'm, like, a one-to-one -one on, like, this is that inspiration as much. All right. I can absolutely, yeah, I can see the Ladybird connection there. And you mentioned the, the visual side of it. So they're, unlike, I suppose, any Pixar film before, I think this is a film that is pretty unafraid to break its visual style. Like people's character, their faces are elastic here and the film can totally change its look in an instant. Mm -hmm. is, it some, is that something that's on the page as well? Or, is, or are the animators kind of allowed to kind of let loose a bit? I think that was something that animation really like went for stylistically art direction on the page I think the emotions are outsized you know it's like clear when May is absolutely freaking out <laughs> but even in storyboards I think at that stage it's more about clarity you know like because with each storyboard we do reels where people watch the movie and so I think because we're going most for clarity, those stylistic things are not the priority. But then when it moves into production and computer animated production, those I think become much larger parts of the conversation. Like, so I actually did not 
really anticipate that the eyes would become like the anime eyes. Like I didn't carve out those moments in the script or know where they would occur. Um, but then when I watched the actual, um, once, cause like a lot of the early reels were just storyboards and drawings. Um, so I do remember the first time I got the full CG effect of it. It was really delightful because I didn't know that's how far it would go. Um, I did know there was some talk early on of a kind of a more chunky animation style that would be maybe a little bit more stuttered, less smooth. Um, Pixar movies are sort of known for being just technically just so smooth, the animation just so fluid, and it's because of their attention to detail and care. So I think it was kind of a bold move to messy that up a bit and just have a style that is not as smooth, um, but can be a little messier. And uh and I think it because it is actually thematically related because it's about a girl who's messy. Like it, it actually makes sense that the style reflects that. I'd like to ask because, uh, as you said, you were drawing so much out of Domi's um, life experience. The period setting of this was so um, intriguing for me. Ladybird is an interesting example because that's another one that is set in um, what would have been Greta Gerwig's teenage years. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that's sort of lines up with Domi's teenage years it's also interesting to me because I'm similar age so being transported back to 2002 Mm -hmm. (laughs) almost exactly 20 years ago as we speak I think when the calendar is flipped Um, so what was that as simple as that being a period of time that was close to Domi's experience or was there a deeper reason for choosing then I think it started off pretty much just because it was lined up with her experience you know and I think it was a, a way for her to then you know, as the thing about a Pixar movie too is that everything is is made right. Like everything in the frame is created, and so I think to just have an anchor of a particular time that she could go back in her brain and know exactly what the kids are wearing, what the kids are doing, was just a really important um, way to just make the whole process a lot easier than if every little thing had to be researched or thought about. And then I think early on, I did. I, I think there were questions of like, well, why not the present? And, you know, what's that choice about? And I feel like um, I feel like the the way the present just moves so quickly now, too. And just that in a way it wasn't about the way reflecting on way kids are now, because I, I feel like that is out of our ken. Like, <laughs> you know, every generation is so different. So it just felt like if we really wanted to make the movie as authentic and grounded as possible, that it really did have to be rooted in a childhood that felt completely real. And it just felt we had a better chance of doing it from a 2002 point of view than from the, a modern point of view. Uh, and, 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 you know, it just made, and also just like it felt right from the very beginning. Like there was never a time uh, where it wasn't a good decision. But there were early drafts and versions of the movie where it wasn't as clear what year it was, you know? And so I think at some point there was a conscious effort to put in the things that really made it feel like 2002, the Tamagotchi, the CD Discman, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and then as the boy band thing became a bigger and bigger part, of course then <laughs> it just felt like it had to be 2002. Like that's sort yeah. of the height of the American boy band, um, even though I think we've sort of inflected it with a, a modern boy band feel. It's, it's funny because um, literally this week, uh, the, the film Red Rocket is coming out and that's got Backstreet Boys on the soundtrack as a major song. So it's like very much a big moment for boy bands <laughs> in the new releases. A lot of nostalgia happening for sure. Uh, there's also the responsibility of, um, you say, the, the script and the dialogue in, in many ways is your responsibility. You're 
representing Canadian characters, a Canadian tone of voice and sense of humour. So how did you put yourself in those shoes? Well, I had to lean on the Canadians <laughs> for sure, you know. <laughs> and again, I think I also just like had to be like, you know, getting all the slang and the right sort of Canadianisms. But there was a lot of fun also doing research, you know, I think. Um, uh, just like looking into like Lester B. Parsons. I, he's just like, what would be a good middle, sk- middle school name? And I'm like, let me find out, you know, <laughs> like famous Canadians, you know. So I got to do sort of a deep dive into this very um, similar but very different culture. Um, so yeah, so there was that, but that to me is all the fun stuff. I think the harder stuff is the structural stuff of like, you know, what, what, uh, how, how do we organize a story like this? How do we weld all these different story elements together and make it feel smooth? Like to me, it was almost all the carpentry of the, the script that was really where all the sweat was. The, the sprinkling of Canadianisms or not even sprinkling, but just the integrating Canadianisms. That was the fun part, you know, that for sure. So from a production side, we spoke to Domi just at the start of lockdown 2020. And I'm not sure what, what, how would that have aligned with your role in it? Because I imagine, well, with animation, scripts have to get locked so much earlier. Uh, were, you, were you still kind of part of the process during the lockdown animation? When, when were you, when was you mostly committed to yeah, turning that? Yeah, no, I, I think I clearly remember when we went into lockdown in March of 2020, and I was still very much involved because I think we were. She, did you say she had just started production, or we had? I think we were like three screenings in out of like what is kind of a six or seven. I forget what the official number is, but we, I felt like we were in the middle of, uh, of a lot and that there was still a long way to go. Like um, the, the last screening is an audience screening. But, um, but I would say that there's a good six or seven that are all like meant to help find the story, lock down the story. Um, so like it is that scary moment where production begins, but elements are not there yet, like the ending, <laughs> like an entire act three, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. um, so I was still very much involved in the um, pandemic transition to working from home was really intense. But what was great about it was that we already knew each other and already had formed bonds from being physically together and, and not just me and Domi, but. I'm just saying the whole team, the producer, the all the production crew, a lot of their principles were set before pandemic happened. Um, so when we got together in Zoom, we were essentially just continuing the relationship, which is somewhat different, I think, from other projects who I, I think that there were some writers who came on after me who never <laughs> really got integrated, you know, so... I feel like I was really lucky that I got to be with everyone first for a good long while. Um, so I felt like I was about midway through the process uh, of my writing uh, because then we went into all the screenings and reels. There's a lot of writing still to do. There were a lot of there were more drafts to do, um, a lot of rewriting and um, just a lot of prep also goes into the productions because we actually um, record lines for the, like the entire script will be acted and put up. So at a certain point, there was just a lot of recording to do, like uh, recording uh, performances, whether it was from scratch recordings of people at Pixar who were Zooming from their closets. <laughs> One of my favorites was actually making when Domi would do scratch and I got to like direct her. It was really fun because... Um, we weren't, I wasn't even like directing her, it would just be, she'd just be like, how's that? And be like louder, you know, or like more, like it was just like fun. It was almost like playing with your friends, like to do this, except you're, you're actually doing, you know, something real. Um, 
So there would be a writing part of every, every screening, like getting the script ready so that it could go into the pipeline of other things, like being drawn, being uh, performed, being edited, all that stuff. Um, and then there was, once the writing was done, was the actual helping with the production part of it, which was like helping record the performances or just being, you know, being there, being an edit. Like, so, so there was a whole other part of the, the writer experience that, also, like I would almost say that as time grew on, like like in the beginning, writing was almost all the job. But then, as production began, it felt like writing was half the job, and and then half the job was just being in meetings and being part of production, and and which is also really great. So in some ways, that to answer an early question kind of reminded me of television because in television, the writers are producers. So you'll be on a series as a writer, but you're also involved with the production. Uh, of the of the episodes you write so it started to feel more like that as time went on so if you don't mind us asking at what point did you find the ending and how did you find it uh we found the ending at the very last screening i think um how did we find it we found it okay well by the ending i will say that uh, i think there was maybe maybe two-thirds of the way in, I think they're, like, I don't know how many spoilers we can do. Is this a spoiler type could, of This won't go out for okay. a couple of weeks, so there could be spoilers, yeah. Yeah, so I think, I think at some point, two-thirds of the way in, we found the Sky Dome moment where uh, everything comes together, right? It's like the aunties, the mom, the daughter, the um, friends, Fortown, everyone's there. And, we, and the um, astral plane of it, I feel like we found two-thirds of the way in. Um, and I think that came out of a lot of conversations um, and also we have an amazing story team too. Like at a certain point, like I was saying earlier that I felt like I was kind of pitching all the ideas, like maybe this or that. And Domi would pitch ideas like this or that and we'd have to kind of go with it. But as the crew started getting bigger and, we, and a story team came on board maybe for our first, for our first uh, screening, then we had like them to like kind of get ideas and stories from. And they would talk about um, their relationships with their parents or they would talk about movies they saw seen so so we could pull inspiration from more people uh, and they often don't get the credit for how how much amazing work they do um, so which is all just to say that I think by the time we got to the end we were it wasn't just me and Domi talking about the end it was a whole conversation that the producer the story like everyone everyone you know like what is the ending and um, and I still remember that there was, uh, you know, one version of the ending that was kind of like a, a Ming who's, who watches May grow up, you know, like who realizes, oh, my God. Like I had this idea that maybe like Ming would look at May and we'd see May through Ming's POV finally and realize that what she sees is the four year old. <laughs> you know, that, Like literally like when Ming sees May, she doesn't see the 13 year old that we all see. She just sees like a small little child and she has to actually. You know, it was almost more like a bow moment, I would say, like you yeah. know, the way the mom is looking at the daughter. And, um, and there was a great story. There's a great story. I was named Tony, Tony Maki, who and, and the story are great because they were just so generous and be like, what about this? Or maybe look at that, you know. And I think he really helped me um, because he was like, you know, there's also this TED talk about, you know, uh, daughters and moms and how, you know, the moms are affected by growing up. And so uh and he kind of like led me to, to think about, oh, what if it's the other way? It's not Ming who realizes May needs to grow up. It's a May who realizes Ming used to be small. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a different way. And, and I don't mean to say like, like it was like a light bulb or anything like that. I think it grew out of conversations with Tony, with Domi. Like I can't even remember pinpointing where that happened. But, 
But then gradually it was like, let's try that version of it, you know, because something magical is going to happen in this forest. <laughs> so what's the <laughs> most, what is the thing that needs to happen for May to grow up? And it felt like maybe her, maybe making May really grow up is that moment we all have when we realize our parents are not adults who know everything. And it's kind of a harrowing moment for some of us, you know, <laughs> to see them as fully human. But it does feel like, oh, that actually probably is a necessary part of growing up. Because there are probably like 60-year-olds out there who haven't had that moment yet with their parents, you know, where you see them as fully human. Um, so I think once we latched onto that and saw it, uh, that became... The, I mean, the ending is kind of weird because it has many parts to it, but that became like a significant part of the ending. Uh, and, and that was, luckily for us, it wasn't too far in. It was maybe two-thirds in. Uh, and then sort of what happens after that, I feel like we were racing to finish, like, we, okay, we get there, how do we get out of here, we, you know, and so the ending of the movie is, is pretty, um, pretty quick after that, but because it, it felt like that's the main event, and then there's just a bit of an epilogue, you know, and, and, and that came at the very end. Well, it's, it's very Miyazaki, as we said, you, to, to get your quick ending. Like, once, <laughs> once you've got everything in. Yeah, yeah we, don't we had give... other versions where it was a bit longer, but we were like, I think you're done with the meal. I think yeah. you're kind of, <laughs> that was tasty and I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, uh, that feels like a natural point to kind of finish our meal, I suppose. Um, but there is there is a, a dessert oh. or a brandy of a question, I suppose, um, whatever it might be, a little espresso, um, which is the question that we ask all of our guests, which is where do we go next? Because we've covered all of Ghibli's films. We've looked at Mamoru Hosoda, Satoshi Kon, Cartoon Saloon. Um, and so we've, we've spoken about the things that inspire you. Uh, where should we go next for our journey? Well, uh I, I have a f few things. I don't know. It's hard to say. We need a few. Nice. A few would be great. Um, one, this is really random, but just sort of popped into my head. But there's a lot of like old movies that are so wonderful. And I do think that if you love animation, the physical comedy that you find in animation, you can often find its roots in like Buster Keaton and like early movies in that... You know, and so I would just say like maybe, you know, during the pandemic, <laughs> should you feel so moved? <laughs> Um, maybe looking at those really old movies, you know, celebrating the masters of that form uh, and just realizing like what a long history animation has, you know. Um, so there's that. And then uh, I would say uh, w one of the, the things that I am embarking on is trying to watch more movies myself. Uh, and I do feel like I want to go back and watch uh, more Ernst Lubitsch movies. I know that's like a really random name and a really random, but, but he writes, he wrote in like the 30s or 40s, I think, but he wrote these delightful, delightful, like just deft, beautiful, funny uh, movies that I think, it's just nice, I think, for us to feel, when we feel so modern to realize like, oh, in the past, they felt the same way and did a lot of the same things. And then the other thing I would just say to, to explore is the other thing I really want to do is, I have been longing to really do a deep dive in Korean cinema just because being Korean American, I'm like, oh, I, I want to put my arms around this whole crazy thing that's happening, you know, um, and, and it's gotten really big, of course, recently with Parasite, but um, I've often wanted to just, if, if I had time, I, I feel like that would be my, my deep dive of just, not just the ultra-violent crazy stuff we're acquainted with, but there's also some very poetic movies that are very awesome and, and quiet, you know, and I just would love to explore them all. So if anyone wants to join me on that, feel free. 
Oh, yeah, that'd be amazing. Although, after what you said earlier, I now want to make Jake read some 80s X-Men comics. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I still have them. I'm, I'm holding on to them. Like, These will be worth a fortune. So I don't know if they would be. Only if they're graded 9.9 and they're sealed in plastic. They are sealed in plastic. They are sealed in mylar with cardboard acid-free backing, I'll have you know. <laughs> okay. Michael, you've been out nerded just know, at the end. Well, no, I, I, I have nothing that's worth anything. Everything's been dog-eared and re-read many times. But that's amazing, Julia. Oh, wow. We'll talk if you're a fan. Yes, I'll see what I, I I'll go back to my collection. Very cool. And let, let's know how the Korean deep dive goes. That sounds really fun. Um, but that has been an amazing chat. Thank you so much, Julia. Oh, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. And I love that you're you're doing this podcast. So thank you. Thank you to Julia Cho for joining us this week and talking about turning red and everything beyond. You could imagine that my eyes lit up as soon as I heard the word X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just a couple of big nerds having a big nerd out. Very lovely to be on the other end of. <laughs> and so cool as well for more recommendations. I love it when we ask our guests for recommendations of filmmakers, filmographies and films we could talk about on the podcast. More Some, some interesting live action recommendations there yeah i've just had the idea that maybe this is something that we could be doing on the, on the patreon or on twitter or something start start putting these recommendations out there doing some kind of world cup system uh see who people end up with because we've had some pretty wild ideas out there and i suppose it was only doing these conversations that the that horrifying thought of live action has come about but i still i still love that suggestion of celine siama that came about last year and I, I love the idea of us diving into Korean cinema. I think there are some Korean filmmakers who, you know, have sensibilities similar to some of the filmmakers we've spoken about in the past, even if they don't work in animation. Mm. Oh, very, very exciting. Um, and if you want to send us your thoughts on that, on a whole Discord channel about it, then, uh, of course, join us on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Ghibliotech, um, or let us know on our regular socials as well. We're on Twitter at Ghibliotech, Instagram at Ghibliotech.pod, or tell us your suggestions to our personal accounts too. You can tell Steph at underscore Steph Watts, Michael at Michael J. Leader. And you can follow Jake at Jake H. Cunningham. We'll be back next week with another journey on the chat bus. Our guest on that episode will be the marvellous Macy Williams. Ghibliotech is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill and Steph Watts. Our music is by Anthony Ng. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.